This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the Center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Everybody's okay? Good. Good. If you need to switch postures during the talk, that's fine to do so. Just take care of yourself and doing what you can to uh, to maintain the ability to stay focused and present. So this talk is going to be a little disorganized, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, so let me just give you the short version in the beginning so when you get confused, you can just remember this. Um, Zen practice is about nothing other than seeing beyond our limitations. Okay, that's it. <laughs> we'll stop here and recite the four. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it, it, um, <clears throat> the reason I'm saying it's disorganized is because I've been um, trying not to pre-think these things too much um, and just let what comes up be what comes up. Now, that's hard for me because um, during the week I tend to uh, think about what is it that I want to talk about on Sunday, and then when Sunday rolls around, it's not what I want to talk about at all. <laughs> you know, what's relevant on Tuesday afternoon has no bearing on Sunday often. So, <clears throat> I was reading some Master Dogen, and this is from his first chapter of Points to Watch in Practicing the Way. Uh, for those who don't know, Master Dogen uh, is the founder of the Soto School in in Japan. He lived uh, in the Middle Ages um, from the year 1200 to 1253. And I would say he's the, the most prolific and seminal writer of Japanese Zen. Um, so if you haven't read him, I recommend doing so. So he says in this chapter, um, he starts this this uh, chapter with uh, the heading, The Need to Arouse the Aspiration for Enlightenment. He says, The mind that aspires to enlightenment is known by many names, but they all refer to one mind. The ancestral master Nagarjuna said, the mind that sees into the flux of arising and decaying and recognizes the impermanent nature of the world is also known as the mind that aspires to enlightenment. Should we then call this mind as the mind that aspires to enlightenment? When the transient nature of the world is recognized, the ordinary selfish mind does not arise. Neither does the mind that seeks fame and profit. Fearing the swift passage of time, practice the way as though saving your head from fire. Reflecting on the transient nature of life, exert yourself, just as Shakyamuni Buddha did when he raised his foot.
This is getting at what I'll get into later, which is bodhicitta, the will for awakening, the wish for enlightenment, the wish for clarity. I don't know about you, but I've been talking with people, and it seems that many people are dealing with a tremendous amount of fear these days. Tremendous amount of uncertainty, frustration, a lot of anger about politics, the way this country is going, the the way the the environment. I don't even like that word environment because it's so disconnected, but the way our planet is being treated by us and uh, there seems to be a hopelessness or a helplessness that has settled in to quite a, quite a number of people. And this these feelings that come up really come out of a reactivity. I think this reactivity is what practice is helping us to identify how much of the time we spend in reactivity. If you think to your week, last week, how much of your time did you spend reacting? When we are in these mind states, we're in a very narrow focus. When we are frustrated, when we are angry, when we are um, in fear, we know that the brain doesn't allow a lot of options. In other words, there is very little information that gets through from the fear center of the brain to the rest of the brain. There's very little information that is allowed to get processed and it sort of gets hijacked. Our, our ability to stay present, to respond rather than react, gets hijacked. And the reactive mind is all that is able to be touched into. And this habitual way that the brain reacts is incredibly powerful. It's so powerful. And it creates these tracks of thought. Um, I'm thinking about how we get into the reactivity of blame. The reactivity of demonizing others. Or ourselves, really. Of this um, this very prevalent one, right? Which is us versus them. This us versus them mentality of reactivity. This, we, we have to have some kind of compassion for ourselves when we realize we're in these states. The, this, this, going back to this condition that we're finding ourselves in, this world that we find ourselves in, 
was thinking it's a bit like being in an earthquake. Have, have any, has anybody gotten, been through an earth, earthquake before? Very small one. Very small one, yeah. Do you remember what it's like to have the ground shake? You know, this, this fundamental uh, stability that we count on, this fundamental solidness, when that begins to move beneath us, that is something um, that is quite unsettling. It's unsettling in a way that many things are not, uh, because it is so taken for granted that that is the one thing we can rely on, is the solidness beneath our feet. This is, this is um, can, many of us can feel this way. We can feel this way when things happen to us in our lives. We can feel this uncertainty begin to, to come in suddenly. And so what do we do? We naturally look for something to grasp onto, to hold onto, to make solid, to make real. Something that we can um, rely on. And that's, that's often what happens in this game of demonizing and blaming and reacting. Is That's what we're attempting to do, is to make solid what we can't understand. And really what's at the core of this is our wish to remain in control. Our hope that we can um, assert some sort of control over our world. But what we need to recognize is that it's simply an illusion of control. This is really what we get taught over and over again in practice. And if we really believe the teachings of the Buddha and um, the masters, we're told that the 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 most solid thing that we buy into is this solid me. This idea that I am solid. I don't change. There is a me at the core. We don't tolerate uncertainty very well. And our systems are so sensitive to uncertainty that they're very hard to get into equilibrium. But this is really just, um, this is really another way that we recreate this sense of solidity. As we practice, we begin to face the reality that we're not quite as solid as we believe we were. And what this brings up for a lot of people is not knowing, of not really having all the answers. I came across a Mark Twain quote. He said, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. 
It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Why is that the case? Why is it the case that what we do know is the problem? Does anybody have a sense of that? Why is it that what we do know becomes the problem? Just hold on to it. You know, it's like... Yeah. You know, if right. you don't know it, we're sort of open maybe to like, okay, maybe, there, maybe someone else knows, or maybe mm-hmm. I might know a little bit of it. That's right. Like, yeah. yeah. So it's not really the knowledge then. It's not the knowing that's the problem. It's the clinging to what we believe is so solid and real, right? That is at the core of the issue, isn't it? Isn't that really the problem? But, you know, practice, if we're open to it, really reminds us, it it kind of, the practice becomes a reminder, a constant reminder, hour after hour, that our agenda, what we take to be solid, um, is is often in conflict with reality. It's a to to be really clear here. It's not that wise discernment is not something we're going for. Knowledge is not. It's not the enemy. But it's that it's that grasping to. Onto, onto, grasping onto, holding onto, that creates our pain. And what do we grasp onto the most firmly? Us. So this is what Dogen is pointing to as he quotes Nagarjuna. In the very beginning, remember, he said, the mind that sees into the flux of arising and decaying and recognizing the impermanent nature of the world. The flux of arising and decaying. He goes on to say, when the transient nature of the world is recognized, the ordinary selfish mind does not arise. Neither does the mind that seeks fame and profit. I was just talking to somebody a few minutes ago, and what came up was how um, many people, especially people that are after fame and profit, the reason that they're doing that is why? It's to maintain this legacy, right? We want to be remembered. We want to have some sort of solidity even after we're gone. And so how much of your efforts go into that, making, making ourselves solid? I came across this uh, this article from the New York Times, and it really gets at, I think, how how we reinforce this solid self. It's an article, even from the title, you can get a, you can get an idea. It's called "Why You Won't Be the Person You Expect to Be." It brings up this um, term in science and psychology called the end of history illusion. Has anybody heard of this? The end of history illusion. The end of history illusion apparently is this belief that researchers have identified that uh, we believe we will not change as much as we really do. 
like when we're young, say teenager, we believe that we will pretty much like the things that we like now. We'll like them in 20 years. <laughs> and when we're middle-aged, yeah, that's pretty much who we're going to be for the rest of our life, <laughs> right? So they did all this research. And, I, and, and it's a great article. I, I'm not going to read it, but... Um, this guy, Dan McAdams, um, who's a psychology at Northwestern, he talks about this end-of-history effect, and he says, the end-of-history effect may represent a failure in personal imagination. And he says, he's often heard people tell complex, dynamic stories about the past, but then make vague, prosaic projections of the future in which things pretty much stay the same. In other words, when we talk about our past, we remember in detail. We tend to embellish the past. But when people are really asked about who they will be in the future, they really go vague. They really become, eh, I never thought about it. I guess I'll just be who I am. You know. He says Dr. Adams was reminded of a conversation with his four-year-old daughter during the craze of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in the 1980s. And when he told her they might not be her favorite thing one day, she refused to acknowledge the possibility. But later in her 20s, she confessed to him that some part of her four-year-old mind had realized he might be right. She resisted the idea of change as it dawned on her at age four uh, because she could not imagine what else she would ever substitute for the turtles. Dr. McAdams said she was she had a seeking sneaking suspicion that she would change, but she couldn't quite imagine how. So she stood with her assertion of continuity. Maybe something like that goes on with all of us. This idea that we won't change. And this this may seem unbuddhistic to you, right? What I'm about to say right now. <laughs> Which is good. Uh, but I believe that we need to spend more time with our future selves. We really do. I don't mean in some sort of fantasy land or kind of ruminatory quality, um, but we do need to think about what it is that we want. What is it, for example, that brings you here? Why are you practicing what is it that you really want to get from practice? Again, everyone's going, oh my God, I can't believe he's talking about what I'm going to get from practice. We're not supposed to want to get anything from practice. We're supposed to be okay. What's that? Boundless samadhi. Yeah, boundless samadhi. Okay, okay. Good, good. Good. We're getting there. Let's start. <laughs> But the reason this is important is because if we don't think about it, if we don't imagine, if we don't spend that time, we will often settle into a kind of status quo, a kind of we can nest in, in practice even. We can kind of begin to settle for, eh, this is just what practice is. We can come to the Zendo, for example, and we'll sit for 25 or 30 minutes and we'll just be lost in thought. We'll just be kind of spending the time of during the sitting, just, meh. Right? 
That's, that's what a lot of people do. It's not simply habit, of, habit force that we're fighting, but it's also a lack of imagination. What is it that we want from practice? Do we want to spend... Is that what practice is really about? Just maintaining. Is that really what it's about? Not according to Dogen in this passage. He says the mind that sees into the flux of arising and decaying and recognizes the impermanent nature of the world is also known as the mind that aspires to enlightenment. Once we see into, once we really, once we really grasp it, meaning understand it, once we really get it that life is short, we talked about this last week. None of us are getting this, getting out of this alive, <laughs> right? Once we that really settles into our bones, into our marrow, then we begin to aspire. We want something deeper. We're not willing to settle in practice. He goes on, he says, fearing the swift passage of time, practicing, practice the way as though saving your head from fire. Reflecting on the transient nature of life, exert yourself, just like Shakyamuni did. This is a really important step. I think it's a really important step for several reasons. One reason is, up until this point, in practice, we think of kind of a map of practice. When we come to practice, we come because we're trying to end some sort of pain of ours. We're trying to get some sort of relief. Uh, this is, of course, you know, that's that's why we're all here. The, the limit, though, is, this has a kind of power to it, but there's a limit to its power because when we begin to experience some relief, this is when we stop practicing. This is this is the, that you, one thing that you have to look out for is when we begin to oh I feel a little bit more calm right okay I don't need to practice anymore or when I'm feeling good I don't practice. This is really one of the biggest dangers is seeing practice as sort of like a uh, reaction to again there's that word reaction a reactivity to our pain. So when our pain level meter is down, we don't practice. And when it's up, all of a sudden the zendo's full, right? But this is not what the Buddha Dharma is about. Because that is a limited way to... uh, We're we're simply always going to be thrown then, thrown around by the forces uh, in our life. We all have a negative bias. This is also, I love research. Uh, I've said this before here. Apparently, you have to have five positive thoughts for every negative thought that you have to counteract because we have five times the amount of negative thoughts about our life than we do positive thoughts. And so that negativity is that driving force for us to practice. But if we're, if we simply focus on what's a deficit in our life, what's a deficit and why, and practicing out of a deficit, then we're really going to be limited. We need to reframe, to practice 
to imagine, as Dogen said, that aspiration for something deeper. What is it that we want? Not simply what is it that we don't want. Not simply, oh, I don't want this in my life, therefore I'm going to practice. I don't want any more fill in the blank, so I'm going to practice. So what is it, what is it that we do want from practice? You know, going back to this idea of only practicing when we're in pain, you see this in all kinds of things. You see this in couples counseling. A couple will come and see me, and they'll be in crisis and pain, right? And then they have one great session, and they kind of feel the connection again for a moment, and then you never see them again, <laughs> right? Like, like that's all it's going to take, right, is one hour-long meeting, Right, and then everything's going to be fixed. But it's because, well, and then it's not that you never see them again, it's that they call you again when they're in crisis again. Right? So it's not working towards some deeper healing, it's working sort of on an emergency medicine level. And this is really um, a, a, not a good way to approach relationship or to practice. So the seeing into impermanence, seeing into the flux, right? This is what we have to come to grips with. We have This is what gives us the positive force to go forward in practice, to aspire to something deeper, to imagine what's possible. This is what the Buddha said. This is what the Buddha tried. He tried everything in his day to get to the bottom of his questioning at the time, and nothing did it for him. And so he said, no, enough is enough. I'm not going to keep spinning out onto these different pathways. I'm going to consolidate my energy. I've tried it all. I've tried every spiritual path. I've tried every yogic tradition. I've tried every body practice and diet. You know, we all do that, right? We all do that. We spin out. We try everything. And this is, this is the second important part of this, why this is important, because it, at some point we say, no, okay, I'm, I'm done shopping. I'm done being a spiritual shopper. This is, um, this, the shopping mentality is huge, you know, in this, in this culture. Um, and we begin to say, no, instead I'm gonna put down roots into a community. I'm gonna put down roots into a practice. And I'm not gonna move until, until it really, um, begins to work in my life. In other words, Zen practice is not a dabbling kind of tradition. It's really not. This is why you know I, uh, that this is why that uh, there's not a lot of people in in Zen. I believe part of the reason is because it's not a dabbling thing. You, there's nothing wrong with dabbling, <laughs> uh, but it's not Zen. So what do we realize when we really practice? What is Zen really about then? Can we, can we really harness our imaginations here, our aspiration here, to begin to get a sense of it? Can we see beyond our, the reactivity, practicing out of reactivity to something deeper? Can you, right now, can you imagine what is it that you want from practice? For me, it goes back to 
this quote from Einstein. He says, a human being is part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts, feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our own personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Can we imagine a practice that is beyond simply taking care of the self? This is a hard thing for people. I'm not saying that we have to get there right now. But maybe we begin to spend some time there. It's going to look different for everybody. Can we use our imagination to imagine how we want, for example, our interactions to go throughout the day when we see that clerk at the store, do we simply just, you know, use them as a transaction? You know, just use people, or do we really stop and center ourselves and spend that time, spend time with people? You know, in other words, fighting that reactivity, that kind of just getting through it, just going, just getting through it, the day, the week, the month. This, this shift in practice from going from self-oriented, me-oriented, what's in it for me, to this greater compassion, the circle of compassion that Einstein talks about, is bodhicitta. This is bodhicitta. Bodhicitta means wisdom mind. Wisdom mind. But it really refers to that aspiration that Dogen was talking about in the beginning that aspiration for something deeper, to live a more connected life, 